It is the 200th year of one of the most celebrated and revered law enforcement agencies in the world, the Texas Rangers. Their image has been shaped through countless movies, books, television stories, and in song. The romantic version of the Rangers paint a picture of rugged individualism, uprightness, and dedication to standing for what's right. Some of that may be well-earned. The history also points to numerous murders of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans that made them feared on the border, as much as the Ku Klux Klan is in the Deep South. They hunted runaway slaves for bounty. They busted up unions and broke up strikes. They conspired to squash civil rights. They violated international law. They have been the army of Texas's moneyed, political, and ruling class. It is that attachment to power that has allowed them to go unchecked and this history to uh, be obfuscated for years. And the Rangers, in many cases, simply lied about investigations, murders, killings, and their actions, and in so many cases that they just lied about it. Anyway, this week's guest, Doug Swanson, a veteran investigative reporter, editor, author, and professor in the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh, has captured this history in his book, Cult of Glory, The Bold and Brutal History of the Texas Rangers. We thank him for joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. We thank you for listening. Like, comment, share, discuss, and most of all, act. You can follow us on social media. The show runs off of coffee and books. And if you want to support us with coffee or books, hit the link in the bio on our social media accounts and you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. Welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Doug Swanson, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm great, Mark. Thank you for having me. Terrific to be here. Yeah, no, it's terrific to have you because as I told you just before we came on, I I read your book, Cult of Glory, a couple of years ago and we weren't doing the show. So I'm really glad to, to have you today because the Texas Rangers are marking their 200th year this year and they've been lionized in movies and books, TV, uh, as a law enforcement agency that's rugged and upright. They are like the epitome of lawmen worldwide, not just America, worldwide. To right. me, they symbolize Texas as much as the Lone Star, right? <laughs> as, as, much as, right. as much as anything, they symbolize Texas. But your book, Cult of Glory, the bold and brutal history of the Texas Rangers points to a more barbarous history a more ruthless history, a more racist history, and um, that they've also really been at the beck and call in serving Texas's moneyed groups and powerful powerful politicians for a long time. So this is a really kind of a counterbalance to what most people would think of when they think of the Texas Rangers and their role in law enforcement. But I want to get into all of that because I think it's a great book and I think it's an important conversation. But for those of us and those people who are listening that aren't as familiar with Texas history, I'd just like to start with Stephen F. Austin, who is the Anglo father of Texas. What was his vision for Texas in the 1820s? What what did he see there? What did he aspire to? Well, Texas then was a part of Mexico. It was a province of Mexico. And Mexico was having a big problem with the Native Americans in Texas. They couldn't control them. There were the Apaches, the Comanches, the Kiowa, and many other tribes. And so the Mexican government thought 
well, it might be a good idea to invite some settlers to come in from the United States, and that would help perhaps to pacify the Native Americans. Well, it was a huge mistake on the part of Mexico, as we later came to find out. But Stephen F. Austin led some of the first settlers into Texas at this time, came in, and he had really three goals. One was to establish an Anglo settlement there. Two, this was to be an extension of the slave empire of the South, because much of Texas was good for growing cotton. And this opened up a grand new territory for slavery. And three, when Austin got to Texas, the first Native Americans he encountered were the Karankawa Indians. Most people have never heard of them. They were a coastal tribe of very big and muscular. They had tattoos all over themselves. They smeared themselves with alligator grease to keep off the mosquitoes. And they were rumored to be cannibals. So they were very frightening to to Austin and the rest. And Austin decided on the spot, and I mean right on the spot the first time he saw the Karankawas, that these people were to be exterminated. He, he made that statement, and, and pretty soon they were, once the Anglo-Texans arrived. Yeah, you know, what's interesting always in that founding story for Texas is that Stephen F. Austin, and I think it's the founding, the 300 families uh, that came over yes. from like Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi are mythologized in Texas, but they were immigrants. Look, they were, let's tell them short, they were brave people. Mm-hmm. They were pioneers, as we yeah. understand that word, you know, they were coming into a hostile land and they knew that, but yeah, someone else was already here. That being the, the Karankawas and the other native tribes and, you know, war broke out pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that part for sure, but I'm really speaking of immigration in the sense of they were coming into what was then the country of Mexico, right? right. Mexico right. had had abolished slavery at that point and they were coming into what was then Mexico the the area that we now know as Texas and establishing a a cotton empire there but more to that point there was a tremendous amount of indian fighting with the caracas and the comanches what was the need and call to have the rangers why were they formed and what role did they play in that well, the first rangers, they were really proto-rangers, I guess, and they were formed in 1823, as you mentioned, that 200 years ago, when the settlers were still fighting the Karakawa. This was in southeast Texas, down fairly close to Houston. And they sent 10 men down the Colorado River to set up a what was called a blockhouse, a little storage fort facility. And that would be used as a way station to fight the Karakawa. And these 10 men who were informally referred to as rangers got down there and spent a few months and they ran out of ammunition and ran out of food and came back home. They never really fought any Indians. They never really fought anyone. But these are seen as the first Texas rangers, although they weren't paid by the state. They, well, there was no state. They weren't, they weren't government officials, but they are seen as the first of this great legendary law enforcement force. Yeah, and and Texas at that point, when you're talking about people coming in and settling the area, it's rough territory, there's lots of hostilities and, and what have you, but you mentioned the word exterminate with Stephen F. Austin, and it shows up uh, a few times in your book, and each time that I read it, it was jarring to me. Talk to me about what... Ex- did exterminate mean exterminate the way we see it, or was that just a throwaway line, or what did he mean by exterminate? He meant wipe them off the face of the earth, and which is what they did with the Karakawa. Within oh a generation or two, there were there were almost no Karakawa left. They were killed off. I think we have to remember that to these Anglo settlers, the Native Americans were, you know, they were like vermin to them. They were thieves. They were killers. They were pests, however you want to look at it. This was not a, a situation where, in general, the the Anglo settlers came in and said, hey, let's all get along. That they, they wanted this territory for themselves. And they saw this as a moral cause, that they were the rightful owners of this. I mean, this goes back to the whole notion of manifest destiny of the American West and all of that. 
But they were coming into this Mexican territory, and it didn't take them long to decide, well, we want to be away from Mexico. And that's why Texas declared itself an independent nation in 1836. One was they didn't like Mexican interference. Two was, as the subject to which you allude, they wanted slavery, and Mexico had outlawed slavery. So that was a big part of it as well. But extermination in this case meant wipe them off the face of the earth. Yeah. Or in some cases, send them up to Indian Territory and what is now Oklahoma. Yeah. And I noticed with that in the language of extermination, and then it almost seemed to, in some cases, be a fetishizing of killing Indians and that and sort of daddy bring me an Indian home and selling Indian scalps as, as sort of, you know, souvenirs and what have you. So it was really a brutal, brutal time. I'm sorry, we have to say it, it, was, it was brutal on both sides. Now, sure. you know, the Indians yeah. fought back, as you might imagine. Oh, yeah. And, and it was a warfare. So it, it's not like the Indians all lay down and said, OK, kill us. I mean, there were, there, it was it was a bloody, bloody, bloody frontier. No, you know, listen, in reading your book, and I thought it was really well written. So when, of course, you can sort of hear sort of these names like the Comanche or what have you, but I didn't realize what a force and how fierce they were and how brutal they were and how long they fought there in Texas. So it was quite a war to to get the land. But you talked about just a minute ago, Mexican independence in 1836. Independence from Mexico. Texas is independent from Mexico in 1836. What role did the Rangers pl- play in the War of Independence? Oh, very little. The Rangers were not really much of an organized force at that point. You know, they, there's always been some question as to whether the, the Rangers were at the Alamo. Not, not really. Maybe a few people who would later become or were had been Rangers fought in the War for Independence or were later to become Rangers. But the, the Rangers were not really organized at this point, not until Texas won its independence, did the Rangers then start to become this official force of the government. Yeah. And and what I see and reading, and these are things that I did not know, I was well aware of sort of the Underground Railroad into Mexico that a lot of people don't think of. You think of sort of coming from Maryland and Virginia and up to the northeastern states, but there's significant activity there. What role did the rangers play in tracking runaways or in that kind of thing? Well, you're right. The Underground Railroad ran south in in Texas. It ran to Mexico. Now, there was not as organized a system as there was, you know, running people from Georgia and South Carolina and so on up to Philadelphia and then to, to New York or Canada or whatever. Although there is some scholarship that's starting to come out that there was some sort of underground railroad that is, you know, way stations and helpers getting people south to Mexico, getting, getting the escaped uh, individuals south to Mexico. But the Rangers helped hunt down escaped slaves and it must be said that they were acting legally at the time. You know, the fugitive slave laws were in effect. So when someone tried to escape enslavement and head south, it was a really perilous journey because the, this was open land, ungoverned and unlawful. And they had to escape not only the, the white people they were running from, lots of times they were hunted down by the Comanches and the Apaches mm-hmm. who in turn enslaved them. So it was really tough for them to get across the river into Mexico. But once they did, you know, they set up their own civilizations there. And often they they align themselves with the Native Americans who had themselves escaped south to Mexico, like the Seminoles and, and others. And with the Rangers go into Mexico to retrieve enslaved people, to, to retrieve property, human property? I believe they did. And a lot of historians believe they did. Now, this is very much a point of contention right now. I was criticized by some of the pro-Ranger people who say that rangers never went into Mexico to hunt for slaves. I think there's ample evidence they did. There's one a very famous expedition in, in 1855 by a ranger named James Callahan yeah. who went across the border. He claimed later he was only after stolen property, but I think there's ample evidence he was after slaves. He didn't capture any. In fact, his mission was a, a 
complete disaster, and he had to burn down the town of Piedras Negras in Mexico to escape. But there still is debate today, all these decades later, as to exactly what Callahan was after. But I think there's ample evidence that he and others were after slaves, bring them back and across the river and, and to sell them. Yeah. Yeah. The the border was definitely in an area. So after the war of independence for Texas and, and that when Texas becomes part of the United States, the border still becomes an area of a lot of contention. And there's a lot of hostility between Texas, Texans and Mexicans and so on and so forth. And I want to say that is is poor veneer. That is a the poor veneer affair is right. what you, you talk about in your book. Can you tell me what happened there? Well, yeah, you're right. The, I mean, the border is still a point of contention. I mean, there's still, right still people being killed on the border. Right, yeah, right now, probably this afternoon. And, and you know, as, as sad as it is. But the border, the, the, the Rio Grande, which is the border between Texas and Mexico and the United States and Mexico, has been a, a battlefield for generations. And in part because in the early 1900s, there was a land boom down there on the Texas side. All of a sudden, this land became really valuable agricultural property. And there were people moving in, and by people, I mean white people, moving in from the Midwest and elsewhere, buying up land and starting farms. And the problem was for these Anglo settlers, Anglo farmers and, and would-be landowners, there were Mexican-Americans, Tejanos they were called, who had lived on this land for generations. And they had these, this land via Spanish land grants back when Mexico was a part of Spain. Well, the, the new people wanted them off. Sometimes they bought them out. A lot of times these Tejanos did not want to sell. So the Anglo power brokers either forced them off the land through shady legal maneuvers, or they had people like the Texas Rangers come in and force them off, either telling them they had to move or burning down their haciendas or killing them. And the Rangers in this period were the equivalent of what we now call death squads. They had lists of people who needed, needed to be killed, as they said, to be forced off their land. And they did this on behalf of Anglo power brokers and Anglo government officials. How many did they kill in the early 1900s? That's a matter of debate, too. Some say hundreds, some say thousands. You know, we'll never know. But they acted as institutional murderers in this case. Now, Porvenir was in 1918. And Porvenir was out in what's called the Big Bend section of Texas, which is out farther west, very remote rocky desert out there, inhospitable to most most people. Big Bend National Park is there now. It's in a lovely place, but it's it's the desert. It's the Chihuahuan Desert on the very tail end of the Rocky Mountains. The Porvenir was a tiny little settlement of maybe, you know, 100 people at most right down by the river. There had been a lot of raids back and forth across the border. Mexicans coming across and raiding Anglo ranchers Anglo ranchers going back and raiding Mexicans. So it was decided that someone needed to get some revenge. And in 1918, the Rangers and some members of the U.S. Army went to this little town of Porvenir in the dead of night. And they took every young man, middle-aged man, an old man out of the village and, and put them up against a bluff and executed them. And in the end, there were, I'm going to check my notes here, I think there were 15 men killed. And they were ages about 15 to 70-something. The Rangers and the Army tried to cover it up. But there was a local schoolmaster out there named Henry Warren who wouldn't let it go away. And he pressed the government. Finally, the Rangers, the governor of Texas, realized this was becoming a political issue. And the Rangers were fired. They were never prosecuted. They were just, they just lost their jobs. And then everybody sort of forgot about it. It just went away historically until later in this century, some historians and others started uncovering it. And only in 2018, a hundred years after the massacre, did the state of Texas finally agree to put up an historical marker hmm. there in Porvenir, commemorating these deaths. Yeah. So a couple of things, whether it's the 
slave catching, which, like you said, was legal, but still is a deplorable act, right? It's not something that that I think you want to be associated with. Poor veneer. The many in Mexico would refer to the Rangers, and this is coming from your book, as equivalent to the Ku Klux Klan. But the image of the Rangers is almost seems like from the beginning has been very well cultivated by the Rangers themselves and, and then the, the press. What was going into that? Who was who was because the Rangers are a small group. And like you said, it's not like it's uh, it's not like a group sitting in, I guess, Austin or Dallas someplace with a, a PR firm and a marketing department. But how is that those images and those 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 deplorable acts that you point to in the book? been kept quiet for so long? Well, they were kept quiet in some cases. In some cases, they were just lied about. I mean, the Rangers and their enablers through the decades have been great at, at fabricating this image that we've talked about, this this idea of the legendary, almost superhuman lawman. You know, there's this bogus slogan, one riot, one ranger, where supposedly a ranger could show up and say, you know, Texas Rangers are here, you all go home, and everybody goes oh, no, the Rangers, and throw down their guns and run away. And of course, it doesn't happen that way. But that's the image that's been promulgated over the years through the Rangers and through compliant journalists and storytellers and through Hollywood, really, starting in the in the 1920s, 1930s. And then once television came along, well, there were all these shows. I mean, that's, that was my first exposure to the Texas Rangers when I was a kid watching this Disney show about Long John Slaughter, you know, the, the, the ranger. And they have been masters at, at putting this image forward. And it's almost always been, if not an outright lie, a heavily shaded version of the truth. But there was a long time there where in the 1960s or so, if you wanted to do a TV series about the Rangers and you went to the Texas Rangers and said, I, I want your cooperation. They would demand script approval because they crafted this image very carefully. Now it's funny you talk about the image and, and you just, we just mentioned slave catching. There's this, this museum in Waco, Texas called the Texas Ranger hall of fame and museum. Mm-hmm. It's a city museum, but it's very much devoted to promoting this image of the Rangers as, as heroic. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, again, some of many of them are, but many of them aren't. And the Ranger Hall of Fame itself has 31 Rangers in it. And they have little plaques there in the Hall of Fame. And one of them was a, a Ranger named Bigfoot Wallace. And up until recently, and Bigfoot Wallace was a Ranger back in the 1840s, 1850s in there. His plaque in the Hall of Fame mentioned that he was had a great skill as slave catcher. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like a great occupation to promote these days, but only until the past six to nine months did the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame take that off his plaque. And that only came because of pressure from a group called Refusing to Forget, which looks at some of the more unflattering sides of history and Mexican-Americans and African-Americans in Texas. So my point is this image has been built up over the decades, over the centuries, and it's very hard to get rid of, and they're, they're still working on it. Yeah, yeah. In your book, there's a couple of groups, the the Knights of the Golden Circle and the Order of the Lone Star of the West. I didn't realize how organized and, and how planful that, the, that many Texans were involved in in terms of wanting to expand slavery and to and have into parts into Cuba and in Nicaragua and all of those things. So I really appreciated your book that you covered a whole lot of ground there and and really tied it to you know the interest of of the rich and powerful in Texas. I, I want to come right. back. The, uh, no, go ahead. The uh, they had designs on opening up northern Mexico, taking it over, taking it away from Mexico and starting a slave empire there. And one of the rangers involved in that was named Leander McNelly, who's also in the Ranger Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And he tried to start a war with Mexico in the 1870s. The reason he did that was he was working for the King Ranch, which is this was, still is, a giant ranch in South Texas. And the those who owned the King Ranch and other big businessmen there in South Texas wanted a war with Mexico. Number one, they wanted to move into Mexico and start the slave empire. 
but they also they were war profiteers as well, and they wanted to be selling material to the American armed forces in this war. Again, Leander McNally was the device they used to try to start this war, and he's now a member of the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame. He went across the border illegally, mm-hmm. killed a bunch of innocent people, came back. Yeah, so we we talked about slavery. We touched on you got the King Branch and sort of ranching and cattle ranching and how important that was to Texas. One thing, oil, and you have a, t- a title in your book is Booger Town. <laughs> and the Rangers going in there and sort of getting things in order there. What happened? Well, there were a lot of these oil towns in Texas, especially in the 1920s. I mean, this the Booger Town was Borger, Texas, which is up in the Texas panhandle. And they, they found oil there. I mean, there was nothing up there and, and, until about 1926, 1927, and they struck oil. And this was a classic oil boom town, which you know, nobody's there. And then all of a sudden, there are thousands of people there just pouring into town. Some of them are looking for oil. Some of them are looking to start churches, but a lot of them are criminals. A lot of them are gamblers. A lot of them are prostitutes. And it was just this wide open criminal enterprise. And so the governor sent in the rangers to try to mop things up. And the rangers had very mixed results. There were a lot of murders that still kept happening. And finally, some of the people there said to the governor of Texas, get the rangers out of here. They're worse than the criminals that were here in the first place. They're running their own criminal enterprises. Mm-hmm. But now history has been whitewashed so that that you talk to ranger apologists about these oil towns, and the whole myth is, well, the rangers came in and cleaned them all up. Right. Made them safe for America. But, you know, it just didn't work that way. Yeah. So you you mentioned in your book that in the 1930s, the rangers are really entering a golden age of image making with Hollywood and and, and and books and those kinds of things. But what's actually happening is they are becoming ineffective. And under governor there, Ma Ferguson, I want to say, yeah. the, but then they, they sort of get cleaned up. Talk to talk a little bit about that sort of transition between when they're really at their lowest under the governorship of Ferguson and then moving into James Allred and, Homer Garrison and them sort of professionalizing. Yeah, that was in the 1930s. Uh, the Rangers became, I mean, the Rangers up to that point had always been a rather political force in that if if the governor wanted somebody's brother-in-law made into a Ranger, then that happened. And you know, they were, they were, there was a lot of patronage going on. And then Ma Ferguson came in and fired all the Rangers and, and reappointed all her cronies and flunkies. And it was a completely corrupt force. And there was a lot of talk that they should, Texas should just abolish the Rangers at that point. We'll get a new governor, James Allred. And there is a move in the legislature to start what's called the Texas Department of Public Safety. And the Rangers were folded into the Department of Public Safety. And the whole goal was to make them a more professional, accountable force. Now, it took a long time for that to happen. But that's when you can really start seeing the evolution of the modern Rangers in the 1930s. Homer Garrison, whom you mentioned, became the chief of the Department of Public Safety. And his whole idea was the Rangers should be this professional force with training. Though it also needs, and, and Garrison was a beloved, was beloved by the Rangers themselves. They they saw him as a stand-up guy who, who, who worked for them. It also should be said that Homer Garrison never hired a black ranger, a, a woman ranger, a Hispanic ranger. He was very much against that. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a man of his time. No doubt about that. And, you know, looking back, it was wrong. But that's the way it was. Sure. Speaking of that sort of time period, maybe a, a couple of decades later, but not that far away when you take a historical perspective. You have Brown versus Board of Education, landmark Supreme Court case, desegregation, and there's some activity there in Texas, like across the nation, to desegregate schools for black folks to to integrate schools. What happened in Mansfield at Mansfield High School and, and what's the Rangers involvement there? Yeah, Mansfield is a city sort of between Dallas and Fort Worth in North Texas. And the NAACP decided after Brown versus Board of Education that they were going to try to integrate 
Texas schools, which were for the most part segregated to public schools. So they chose Mansfield. Mansfield did not have a high school for black students. They were bused about 20 miles away to Fort Worth. So they decided and got a court order to integrate Mansfield High School. The governor at the time, Alan Shivers, was very much against integration. So he sent the Rangers. And, you know, in other states, other places, the state police were used to you know, hold back the mob or federal authorities were used to hold back the mob in places like Mississippi and Arkansas. But in this case, the Rangers were sent to, as one person later wrote, uphold the will of the mob. The Rangers literally stood with the mob, which blocked any efforts by students to enroll. And there's a famous photo that is in my book of a Texas Ranger who was in charge that day, leaning up against a tree, looking very relaxed. And in the background is Mansfield High School. And there's a figure hanging from the school in effigy. It's the, you know a figure of a black kid hanging in effigy. And the ranger is making no effort to take it down because that was not what the order, the ranger was ordered to do. They did it later, a week later in Texarkana. Literally stood with the mob. The mob black blocked the way so the students couldn't enroll and threw rocks at the at the kids, and the rangers stood with them. Now they were only following orders. We have to we have to make that point. They're doing what the governor told them to do, but you know they blocked the way. Yeah, but now I want to say they were following orders, but they showed a lot of enthusiasm and skill in following those orders as well, particularly. Sergeant Banks, I want to say, who was the lead ranger that was sent into those areas where school desegregation was happening, seems like he was coordinating closely with the White Citizens Council as well. Right. He made he made close friends with the White Citizens Council. And for for your listeners who don't know what that is, it's been sort of derided as the Uptown Clan. It's the it's the Klan members who don't wear the sheets. You know, it's an organized group of government officials and businessmen who basically opposed integration. And and Jay Banks, the sergeant on the scene there at Mansfield in Texarkana, became very close to them. And in the end, he bragged about the nice chicken dinner they had invited him to. He was their pal. And then later, there was a businessman who commissioned a statue of a Texas Ranger that he wanted to cast. And Banks, who he, he was a good-looking guy, big, good-looking guy. He looked like a ranger, everyone said. So he was the model for the statue. Mm. And that statue, which on his pedestal stood about 12 feet tall, was in the lobby of the Dallas Love Field Airport, the city airport in Dallas, for decades. And then when my book came out, the city took it down. I don't know where it is now. I don't think anybody knows. Yeah, so, you know, that's one of the great things I think about when there's when you have good investigative journalism or a book like this there. Sometimes that there's some action action taken in that, and that just happened recently, like you said, that the statue was taken down. I do want to just fast forward a little bit. I don't want to get that far ahead, but I want to go to organizing. So we have the Rangers, just to recap, clearing out sort of Indian tribes, the Karankawas, Comanche, Apache, Cherokee, and others, essentially to clear land and make way for the cotton empire. We have rangers enforcing, helping ranchers, you know, and in, in protecting their property. We talked about them cleaning up oil towns like Borger. And, and then now the school desegregation and what have you is just sort of kind of what I would call on brand for the South and many parts of the country at that time. But the rangers show up again in the 1960s, when Cesar Chavez sends an organizer or some organizers to work with uh, fruit pickers there in the border. Right. Yeah, the Rangers had a long history of busting strikes. I mean, they even busted a cowboy strike one time up in the Texas Panhandle, if you can believe that. Mm. But yeah, in 1967, the, the melon pickers in Starr County, Texas, down on the border, tried to organize that you're right. There was a, someone who had worked with Cesar Chavez in California came to do this and the farm workers decided they did not want to work for pennies a day. They needed better conditions. And so they went on strike 
and the merchants and the local government people called in the rangers. The rangers were led by a ranger named Alfred Ali, who was a legendary old school ranger. His men loved him. I said in the book, I think you could probably call him the toughest ranger of his day because he pistol whipped a highway patrolman who wrote a traffic ticket to his wife once. So that's how tough he was. He was an old school lawman. And he came in and the way the rangers broke this strike was they they made ridiculous arrests for, you know, blocking traffic or you, if you were picketing too close to each other, they could arrest you for that. And, you know, they'd throw you in jail overnight and you'd be back out the next day. Sometimes they would you know, slap people around, knock people around. I talked to a Presbyterian minister who was helping out in the strike, and he told how the rangers took him up to where a freight train was passing at very high speed, and they grabbed his, the back of his head and pushed his face up within inches of this passing freight train to try to intimidate him. So that, that basically was their MO, intimidation. Now, that was really the last strike in 1967 that the Rangers ever became involved in because the fallout was so bad, the backlash. Everybody realized, at least everybody who was outside the Rangers, realized that things had just gone too far. And there was a lot of criticism by the Civil Rights Commission and the Supreme Court and others that, that really the Rangers had no no place to be out busting up strikes by farm workers. Yeah. And so with that, and I thought that that was one really good story. Well, it's not a good story in terms of <laughs> a big uh, a story of nobility, but I, I thought it was a really good illustration of your where you open the book, where the Rangers really aligned with the money group. And now this is Mark saying this, and this isn't in any, this isn't in Doug Swanson's book or any other book, but in Atlanta here right now, we have a lot of strikes and protests about the official term is the Public Safety Training Center, also known as Cop City. And it's a $90 million project, but two thirds of it are private, are privately fund from big Atlanta companies and wealthy people or what have you. So that that sort of alignment with property and business or what have you and law enforcement, I mean, really what you mentioned in your book and then bringing it to me thinking about what's going on in Atlanta was very, very helpful. Civil rights. So I want to go back to that a little bit because there was something that really stood out to me when you, when you were talking about the minister being held on the on the railroad tracks. There was an NAACP head who was really brutally beaten. This is in well, probably, I think, during during Red Summer. But Texas right. and the Rangers have had really a hostile relationship with the NAACP from that time of Red Summer and through civil rights. Can you give some examples of that? Well, I'll go back even further than that. Yeah, there were there were about 450 lynchings in Texas from 1885 to 1930. Probably more because you know it, it's hard mm-hmm. to get an accurate count of lynchings because they were not always recorded. About three fourths of the victims of those lynchings were African American. Now, I'm not going to say the Rangers promoted lynchings. I don't think anyone can go that far, but and there are cases where the the rangers did prevent lynchings there are some it just didn't happen in a widespread way there was no government effort to to really eliminate lynchings during this period so i looked at one case in 1930 where in sherman texas up in north north texas where a, a black man had been arrested and accused of sexually assaulting a white woman so he went to trial and five rangers showed up to protect him, which is what the rangers often did. They were they were ordered in to protect people like this who were on trial. The trial started. The mob, the white mob, stormed the courthouse, set it on fire. Mm-hmm. The rangers escaped from a second floor window, climbed down a ladder. And here are the rangers facing this howling mob. Now, remember the slogan, one riot, one ranger. Well, these rangers, they they got in a borrowed car and left town. And the mob continued to burn down the courthouse and then pulled the man's body, either dead or alive, we don't know, 
from the courthouse, dragged it through the streets, and then hung it from a tree and torched it. Uh, the Rangers, I've never had to face down a mob, so I'm not going to call into question their courage there. But this is another example of how the Rangers' legend has grown because in later years, this whole incident was either ignored or the leader of the Rangers on the scene, Frank Hammer, became one of the most celebrated Rangers of all time because he helped capture Bonnie and Clyde. It, again, was whitewashed and overlooked. The NAACP was not a factor there, but the Rangers did help drive the NAACP out of Texas for a while in the 1950s. I mean, it didn't last all that long. And the Rangers were only a factor in that. I mean, this was a statewide governmental effort right. to declare the NAACP illegal in Texas. But the Rangers were part of that because it was a governmental effort and they were part of the government. So, yes, they've always been hostile. And and, and you, the, the beating of the NAACP head is correct. And the, and the Rangers were complicit in that, too. Yeah. And, and listen, the Rangers are doing the bidding of the government. Like you say, a lot of times at the beck and call of the governor, there's not a lot of processes and procedures and checks and balances in deploying the Rangers. But at the same time, when they come, they were bringing a, a certain a brutality and really almost, it seems to me that knowing if there was some some killing or what have you, there would be there wouldn't be any accountability into it. Even if there was a, a charge or investigation, I don't remember Rangers really being held accountable in reading, in reading your book or throughout that time. No, no, they weren't. I mean, look, if, if we go back through the, the history of Texas and I'm not talking about the history of say from 1964, but I'm talking about going back before that, Texas was a really violent place, and in general, African-Americans and Hispanics did not get any justice. And if government agents, whether they were rangers or local police or whatever, killed some of them, very few of them were held to account. I mean, it was pretty rare for that to happen. Yeah. I think that's changed. I mean, now, if there is a, if someone dies in a county jail, for example, white, black, whatever, the rangers come in to investigate now. And their record there is mixed. There's a lot of criticism of them in that regard, but they are at least trying to do their jobs in this case. And I think I have to back off a little. I don't want to depict the Rangers as this wholly evil force. Sure. Uh, you know, they, especially the modern Rangers, they do some good work. And I, I didn't come into this thinking I'm going to, I've got an ax to grind against the Rangers. I, as a newspaper reporter, which I was for a long time, I had a decent relationship with the Rangers I always worked with. You know, they are a different force today than they were. That doesn't mean there's not room for improvement. But again, going back to what you originally mentioned, look, they were they were the force of the government and the government in Texas was for decades, generations, hostile toward Mexican-Americans, African-Americans. I mean, that's just a fact. Yeah. Well, listen, like you said, I can't remember a farmer. I want to say it was the ranger who was involved in catching Bunny and, and Clyde and what have you. I'm not saying there are bad people doing bad things. And so you have an elite group like this that was that was doing that. But then there's the unchecked or sort of untalked about other portion of this that I think your book helps to bring to light really well. But, Talk a little bit more about why did you write the book? What were you, what, what did you set out to do? Well, I kind of stumbled into it the way I like, go through life, just kind of, you know, walking around and seeing what comes up. I had written a book called Blood Aces, which was a, a biography of this guy named Benny Binion, who was a Texas racketeer in the 1920s and 1930s, who moved to Las Vegas. And eventually he started the World Series of Poker, but he was a, really a great character and it was a fun book to do. And the, the book did, I think, exceeded expectations. So my publisher said to me, we want a big Texas book. And so what do you got in Texas? You got, you got Lyndon Johnson. Well, Robert Cairo has done Lyndon Johnson and I'm the Robert Cairo. And he got the Alamo and he got the Rangers. And I decided, I think the Rangers looked like, it, it looked to me like there was some potential there, but I really didn't know what was there until I started poking around it was supposed to be a, a two-year project. It ended up taking five because there was just a lot more there than I thought. What struck me is once once I 
got into it, a lot of these legends just kind of fell apart like wet cardboard. And that's what got me going. You look at these stories and look at the things that were written. For example, going back to, to Jay Banks, we talked about him and, and standing with the mob in Mansfield regarding integration. I'm not trying to attack Jay Banks. But after that happened, I mean, we can look back on it now and say, well, that was clearly wrong. But after that happened, I found stories about how Jay Banks, that ran a few years later, how Jay Banks had stood against the mob and had done the right thing and, and helped integration in Texas and all that. And I thought this is just, it's not only wrong, it's a complete fabrication. And so I found a lot of that. And that that's what sort of drove me into the book, I guess. Yep. Talk a little bit more about what is the role of the modern rangers? You said they, they investigate sort of deaths that happen in prisons and jails, or what have you. What are some other activities they're involved with now? Well, we have to remember there's only about, I haven't checked the numbers lately, about 160 rangers in Texas. And this is a state of what, 28, 29 million. So a lot of people in Texas have never met a ranger. Sure. But what they do is they have several duties. One, they help out other departments, especially small town police departments and sheriff's departments, maybe they have like a double homicide in a county of a few thousand people, of which there are in Texas. They may not have a homicide detective. So a ranger will come in and help with the investigation or you know, provide whatever assistance is needed. They also investigate cases of political corruption of a state official or a county official or you know, any kind of government official is, is charged with some sort of corruption, the rangers will come in and investigate that. As I said, they investigate jail deaths. They're just sort of there to assist at large. They have a big force now down on the border, SWAT teams and intelligence officers and all that. Good luck finding out from the Texas Department of Public Safety exactly what they're up to, because that is not a transparent organization. So, you know, we really don't know what's going on down there. But they have a wide range of activities. They generally operate semi-autonomously. The rangers have always been independent, at least relative to other law enforcement officers. They, they sort of go their own way. And that's one of the attractions of the job, I think. The book was released in 2020. You mentioned the statue of, of Jay Banks being removed from, from Love Field or the, the statue that was based on his image being removed from Lovefield. How was the book received there in, in Texas by the Rangers and by government officials? And Well, the Rangers didn't like it. I know that much, but it was made pretty clear to me. I, I, you know, the, I don't want to use the term lucky, but the book came out, was published about two or three weeks after the George Floyd murder. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And so, Police brutality was a hot item. Yeah. And so I, a lot of radio interviewers and newspaper interviewers and magazines wanted to talk to me about police brutality and the Rangers. So that, I mean, I'm sorry to say that a man's murder <laughs> that helped me out, but that's just a fact of, you know, of business here that drew some attention to the book. I think the book was well received. It was, you know, really well reviewed in places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the newspapers of Texas and elsewhere. But, you know, I got some heavy criticism from people who thought I was being unfair to the Rangers. Some, you know, I can go on Amazon now and look at my one-star reviews still of people who say I, I wasn't a real Texan. And someone said I was a Yankee professor who probably wore skinny jeans and had a man bun. And, you know, all I got back here is a bald spot. But that's the way they regarded me. And I mentioned the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame earlier. They really did not like the book. And they worked with a PR firm in Houston to try to send out criticism of the book to various media outlets because they thought I was cherry picking and unfair and, and didn't, didn't look at the whole of history when I regarded the Rangers. And I think I talk a lot in the book, I think, about the good things that the Rangers have done. But there have been about a thousand books written about the Rangers who that regard them as heroes and Superman and all that. And I wanted to try to poke a hole in that. And I also have to say, there was a lot of scholarship out there and has been, especially by scholars who have Hispanic backgrounds and African-American backgrounds that pointed out a lot of what I pointed out in my book through the years, but it just didn't get a whole lot of notice in right. many cases, perhaps because of who was writing them, 
perhaps because they were published by academic presses and all of that. So a lot of this I didn't uncover. It was there, but it just had not been all put together, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good point. Your book brings it all together. And and I want to say, listen, balance is important, I guess, or, or what have you. But, but like you said, if you go to Amazon, <clears throat> you're going to see a lot of books that are just, I mean, glowing about the Texas Rangers and, and about the individual Rangers and, like I said, lionizing them. So I don't see, at least now, this is my perspective, that it's out of line or even in your book where it doesn't point to them as a law enforcement agency it was also doing legitimate, good and tough law enforcement work in tough situations. But then there are also this sort of list of things. And it's not one or two things. It's really like sort of each period of American history or Texas history of where they are been involved in doing some pretty awful things or things that need to, to people need to understand. As we come to a close at the end of the book, you, you thanked librarians and, uh, you know, we're thanking the many staffs at libraries where you'd sat and were able to access books and papers and that, and all of the things that that I guess book writers do right now, librarians and listen, and it's not just Texas, not just Florida, what have you. The state of New York, or city of New York, rather, the mayor, the the library budget is going down, and the police budget is going up. And I want to ask, in the context of books being pulled off the shelves and all of those things, has has the has your book experienced any of that sort of threat of, of being pulled off, off of shelves or away from students or any of that? Not that I know of, but I, you raise an excellent point. I, I mean, these, these people, the librarians to me are just the unsung heroes of, of our country and, and our civilization. And that may sound overstated, but to me, the free flow of information and ideas is one of the bedrocks of, of our country and our democracy and I grew up in Florida, and then we moved to Texas. So you're right; those are the hot spots right now for this whole idea of suppression of information and libraries and books. And it just it it saddens me to no end yeah. to, to see that happen. And I hope we can get get beyond that. As far as I know, no one has has tried to pull my book off the shelves. But I do know that the the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum in Waco would like to see it pulled off the shelves. They made that clear. I heard that they had been mounting a campaign against me. And so I filed a Public Information Act request with the city of Waco for everything that mentioned my book. I thought I'll get back a few pages. I got back 2,000 pages of wow. emails and letters and memos where they were trying to figure out how to, how to attack my book. So it, and they're a library. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're an archive. They're a state archive. So, you know, it's really threatening. I work at the University of Pittsburgh, and it goes the other way, too. There are questions about whether conservative voices and right-wing voices are being suppressed on campus. I think that's an issue and a big question as well. I am an open information absolutist just about, you know, let's talk about it. Let's examine it. Let's throw it all out there and let the facts speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. No, listen, I couldn't agree more. Part of why I do this show is because I don't think that there's enough conversations about some of these issues, and specifically for me, especially about African American history, which is a lot is it's very much under attack. Not just sort of rhetorically, but you know, legally, there, Texas, Mississippi, Florida. I mean, it's pretty scary what's happening. So Absolutely. that's why we do this show, and I'm glad you've written your your book. One last question Thank before you. we get to our in insert of questions. While any right. of this was happening, did any law enforcement agencies, were there any law enforcement agencies, any politicians, policymakers that reached out to you for just sort of information about how your this history may inform the way they want to reform or remodel policing at all? No, but I don't think there's much of a movement in Texas at present toward reforming policing, at least on the state level. I mean, right. the, the state government 
is heavily, heavily conservative Republican. And if anything, it's going the other way. I mean, we, we talked about history. There's a, there's a thing in Texas right now called the 1836 Project, yes. which is attempting to really, to my mind, rewrite history as it will be taught in schools. So they're not eager. People who run things like that are not eager to hear from people like me. In fact, they, they want quite the other side to be promoted. So yeah, I'm, no, they, I'm sorry so, to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 1836 project, which is a reaction to the 1619 project. And right. I think for many Americans, people think of Texas as starting with oil and starts with cotton and African slaves and black slaves. That's where it starts and it moves into these other things. So it's quite a time. Anyway, Doug, we appreciate you having written a book and spending time talking to us about it. As we close. Thank you, Thank you Yeah, yeah, yeah. We appreciate it. What does it mean to live well? Well, you know, I'm sure you get answers like this all the time. Just before I came on with you today, I had a long talk with my daughter, who is graduating from from a master's program next month, and she doesn't have a job yet, so she's looking for a job, and she's very nervous about that. And I get this with my students here at the University of Pittsburgh. They're graduating and not having a job. But I spent about 45 minutes on the phone with my daughter telling her how difficult her mom and I had it when we were first starting out, and uh, I don't know that I made her feel a lot better, but I made myself feel better that I have uh, a daughter who's, I mean, she's married now, she's an adult, but she can still get on the phone to me and her her mom and we can talk to her. And that, that made me feel much better than, than anything has made me feel in, in a long time. Not that I helped her that much, but just the idea that we can, we can sit and talk and, you know, talk as a family. That's just the great thing. Now, you know what? I'm glad you said that. And and listen, this is this is your answer. But because you, you brought daughter into it and what have you, I actually I saw my daughter who is a she's recently completed her undergrad and starting a new job in a couple of days and looking at grad school and all of those things. And it is good to have her come and ask me for things. And I feel like I have to have this Solomonic wisdom sometimes, but I think it's just good sometimes that, hey, at least it can have the conversation. At least I was there to answer it. Now, I would also tell you, as it relates to your book, on the scary side, I mean, literally just a couple of hours ago, my eldest, who's in his late 20s, was was pulled over for just a a traffic stop. But, you know, the, the reason why your book and all of these conversations are important. Is it just a traffic stop in this midday or what have you? But he called me because that is a a a that can be a precarious situation. He's young and he's black and he's big and he's a whole lot of things that could make it make a situation like a traffic stop go bad. So that being able to talk yeah. to your daughter to bring it back to you, this is your answer. We think I get it. There is a a joy in parenting that you really can't order it off the shelf. I mean, it's just, it just sort of, oh, goes right. yeah. The short parenting, that's what I meant to say. You said it more articulately than I could, but you're exactly right. Now, listen, hey, you're the writer. You've got a whole lot of articulate things in, in here. So I, I'm glad I could get one in. A couple of things real quick. Tex, you're a writer, and I believe you teach your writing there at University of Pittsburgh. That's right. I teach nonfiction and fiction writing here. Nonfiction and fiction writing. Favorite writers. And if they're Texas writers in there, even better, but they don't have to be. Well, my favorite writer of all time, I think, is William Faulkner, because I said I grew up in Florida, but I grew up in Florida when Florida was the Deep South. Yeah. And I worked in Mississippi for a while. And that was the first writer, I guess, I really became in awe of. Now, Faulkner is problematic these days because of some of the racial components of his writing. And I think we all have to deal with that. And I I can't teach him anymore because of of some of the racial treatment. But the way Faulkner created this uh, this world in this tiny town and tiny county in Mississippi, to me, I've just never gotten over. 
my I guess one of my favorite though contemporary writers is is Tobias Wolf, short story writer. And when I was at a Stanford on a fellowship long ago, I took a class from him. And he's one of those guys I read and I think, why am I even trying to write? Because I'll never be this good. Right. Uh, but keep at it anyway. Yeah. Listen, you know, I, now to to go back to history, I think that would really be a shame if Faulkner is not being taught or being widely read or attempting to read. I mean, because it's his, he. It, it's not easy. It's not easy. Right. No, I listen. I picked I, the first time I picked. Uh, I can't remember. Which book I picked up first, but I opened it and I'm looking. All the words are in English, and I can read. And I'm like, I got to come back to this. I've got to become a much better reader before I get to it. But around the racial component, and I think this is where we all have to be careful. Is there's one thing about when you are taking a somebody, let's say. Nathan Bedford Forrest, and you want to make him a sort of uh, human rights sort of champion or what have you, that, that's garbage and that shouldn't be there. But for somebody right. like Faulkner writing about Mississippi, and like you said, it's fictional, he's using fiction, but he's telling a lot of truths about that time that actually I think we need to understand now more than ever. And and quite frankly, we need more difficult reading, too. So I, I'm sad to hear or uh, troubled to hear that that there's that Faulkner is problematic. I'm surprised, actually. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure you can find some professors still teaching Faulkner. It's just uh, when you get into racial issues in a university setting, you got to be really careful these days because it, it can get you can get in trouble in a hurry. So I probably I'm taking the coward's way out here. And not teaching Faulkner, but yeah, 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 I get it. One of Jubilee Margaret Walker, and I went to Jackson State, and she taught there for a long time. The the Walker Center is there at Jackson State, where her our papers are and what have you. In Jubilee, the relationship between the enslaved woman and the white mistress is more collegial then modern eyes or ears want to read. But I think it's really important that you take these great works as they are. And you can dissect them and you can say in your mind, okay, I can see where this is problematic or what have you, but to not read it is a problem. Anyway, I don't, this isn't a show about literature, but I'm glad you accommodated <laughs> us on that. Okay, you're from Florida and Texas. All right, so give me a four act concert florida musicians texas musicians but you only get four do they have to be alive dead or alive can i pull up yeah florida and texas all right we'll open with the ray wiley hubbard from texas who to me is just the coolest guy around then from florida we'll bring in tom petty I was going to say, yeah, uh, I knew it was coming. Yep, go ahead. <laughs> Let's see. Lyle Lovett from Texas comes in. And and the one to steal the show, uh, I think Lucinda Williams, who, mm. you know, is not wildly popular, but, man, what a songwriter. And, and if she can have on the side maybe Steve Earle helping her out, that'd be great, too. But, you know, if we're going, I don't know, I got to throw Otis Redding in there. I can go back to people who aren't around anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, you could go on and on. See, I was going to say, oh, Otis Redding's not there, but I'm going to also say from- Al Green. Al Green I got to have. You, you're going to bring in Tom Petty. Got that. I understand that. But Tom Petty, I'm sure, would say that, well, you got to have Lightning Hopkins, who's a blues man from <laughs> East Texas. I mean, you can't start, you yeah. can't get to Tom Petty- Without lightning hot. Well, let's get Freddie King in there too, and the Freddie Red King. Belly. I mean, <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, one of the greatest concerts I ever saw. I was in high school, and this friend of mine persuaded me to go see BB King in Dallas, and this was like 1970. Oh, okay. And that's that's probably the greatest concert ever, along with maybe the band and Bob Dylan. I saw once, but but. Man, BB King. I never get to saw. I never did get to see Freddie King, but I, I did see BB King. That but, is awesome. That is awesome. If I'm putting together a fantasy concert, I think it's Freddie. So. 
I got you. Well, you know, listen, and that that 1970s period, I mean, B.B. King had done live at Cook County Jail, I want to say, during that time. And uh, there's another one there. Also, James Brown, live in Texas, live in Dallas in 1970 is good. So anyway, there's been a lot of... I got to throw in Solomon Burke, too, as long as we're (laughs) bringing in people who are no longer with us. And Solomon Burke singing... A country song written by Tom T. Hall. That's how I got to Memphis. Mm. To me, is one of the greatest recordings ever. I don't know that recording. I'm, I'm going li- to listen oh, to it later. It so, it all right. Okay. All right. I will. Well, Doug Swanson, we really appreciate it, and I'm going to cut here. This is the part of the the podcast where my wife listens to saying, "So you, this is where you need to to discipline yourself." And say thank you to your guest, and I really appreciate it. And I want to encourage everyone to get a copy of Cult of Glory, the bold and brutal history of the Texas Rangers. It's by Doug Swanson, who's been our guest today on the Parlay in All Blue. We appreciate you all listening. And if you want to support us, a like, a share, a subscribe, talking about it to someone else. And if you want to do other things. This show runs off of coffee and books. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash Mark Dawson. We appreciate you. And Doug Swanson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash parlay in all blue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at the parlay in all blue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media and thanks Be well, and we out.